check one, two, there we go. So we're going to be in chapter 17, and uh, some of this will be review from, uh, from previous weeks, but let's just pray before we get started. Lord, we just thank you for all that you do for us, Lord. We thank you that you're in control, God, of every aspect of our lives. Lord, take control of this service, Lord. You, you already have been here with us, and I'm just asking you to take control of my lips and my tongue, guide my mind and my heart. May I speak only as you would have me to speak. Open up our hearts to receive from your precious word. And we just love you and we thank you for what you're going to do in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so in verse 1, uh, it says that one of the seven angels that had the seven plagues came and talked with John. And he says, come here, I'm going to show you the judgment of the great whore or the harlot that sits on many waters. Now, we've already, we've already explained what the waters are. They're peoples and tongues and nations. So whatever this harlot is, she affects the whole world. This is a worldwide thing. It's not just a local uh, issue. In verse 2, it says that the kings of the earth have committed fornication with her. So that's the highest level of society have been involved with this harlot. And throughout the centuries... We have seen uh, empires uh, empowered by Satan. And uh, we can look in the history of the Bible, for instance. The Egyptians, you know, they, uh, Pharaoh had his magicians, his astrologers and sorcerers. And uh, uh, the Assyrians were, were guilty of that kind of thing. The Babylonians, Nebuchadnezzar had his astrologers. And the Persians had their astrologers. That's why Daniel ended up in the lion's den, because they were jealous of him and the Greeks, and so on and so forth. So we see this at the highest levels um, of, of, of power, but also the inhabitants of the earth are drunk with fornication uh, of the woman. So the woman is intoxicating everybody. Okay? She's, she's making everybody drunk. And harlotry, as we've talked about, is a symbol uh, or an idiom of false religion. Now we get to verse 3, and it says that this angel carried away John in the spirit into the wilderness... Now, Warren Weirdsby said this is, this is the sad progression of humanity. It started out with a beautiful bride in a garden, and now there's a harlot in the wilderness. And it really is a tale of two cities, if you will, uh, the tale of the New Jerusalem and Babylon. Understand that that's what's being contrasted here in these, uh, in these chapters. And <clears throat> Adam, you ran out the door last week, so I'm be punished this week. So, if you will, read Revelation 21, uh, it's up on the board here, 9 through 11, and you'll see the contrast between the harlot and the bride of Christ. And there came unto me one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials full of the seven last plagues, and talked with me, saying, Come hither, I will shew thee the bride, the Lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain, and shewed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of the heaven from God, having the glory of God, and her light was like unto a stone most precious, even like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. All right, so he's carried in the spirit to, to a high mountain this time to see the new Jerusalem. But in Revelation 17, he's carried uh, in the spirit to the wilderness to see this, this woman. And what we see... Also in Revelation 17, 3, is that, um, that the woman is sitting on a scarlet-colored beast. Now, scarlet is the color of sin, uh, Isaiah says, though your sins be as scarlet. But 
Uh, also, it's a symbol of luxury. So what we have here is the woman riding the beast. She's sitting upon him. So the, the, the idea here is that she's controlling the beast. And for a while, the beast is willing to abide by that. That will change, as we will soon see. And John has already seen this beast. He saw it in chapter 13. And so this is, this is nothing new for him to see this. Now, God in his providence uh, does not want a marriage of church and state. He, he doesn't want that. Uh, Nimrod did that at the Tower of Babel, and God, God judged that. Um, pop quiz again. You guys did so good last week. Let's see if you remember the quiz uh, this week. In the Old Testament, if you wanted to be a king, what tribe did you have to be in? Judah. If you were going to be a priest, what tribe did you have to be from? Levi. So in the Old Testament, you could not be both a king and a priest. God separated those two for a reason. The, the exception to that is Melchizedek and Jesus Christ. And guess who else? There's one other exception. There's one other entity that's going to be a king and a priest. Does anybody know? Jesus, Melchizedek, and one other entity. I'll give you a clue. Look at your neighbor. That's us. We're kings and priests unto God. So that's a unique feature. Now, in the Old Testament, uh, there's an interesting uh, narrative in the book of Zechariah. And in Zechariah, I want you to, um, you don't have to turn there. I've got it up on the board. I'll, I'll let Adam read it to you. But in Zechariah, you see a picture. Now, this Joshua here is the high priest. It's not Joshua of Jericho. And uh, Joshua and Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel is the governor. He's the king, if you will, under the Persian rule. And they're tasked with rebuilding the temple, the second temple. Okay? And so, um, if you will, Adam, would you read Zechariah 6, 11 through 13? Then take silver and gold and make crowns and set them upon the head of Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest. And speak unto him, saying, Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, Behold the man whose name is the branch, and he shall grow up out of this place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. Even he shall build the temple of the Lord, and he shall bear the glory, and shall sit and rule upon his throne. And he shall be a priest upon his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. Praise God. So there's coming a guy who's going to be a king and a priest, and his name is the branch. Anybody? Who's the branch? Jesus Christ, very good. And they put it in all capital letters here to give us a, to help us out. But uh, so this is going to be the true king and priest who's qualified to rule and reign. All right, in Revelation 17, uh, 4, we see that she is uh, outwardly very beautiful, a lot of adornment, and, uh, but inside... Full of wickedness. Now, I have made a point throughout this study that the church is not going to go through the tribulation. And I guess I need to qualify that. Because the true church, the blood-bought, born-again church, is not going to go through the tribulation period. But there will be a church that goes through the tribulation period. And that church is the harlot church. Okay? And she is embodied in Revelation 2 by the church at Thyatira, or Theatira, however you pronounce it. And Jesus had some stern words for this church. Adam, would you read that? Revelation 2, 20 through 22. 
Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee, because thou sufferest the woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants to commit fornication, and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. And I gave her space to repent of her fornication, and she repented not. Behold, I will cast her into a bed, and them that commit adultery with her into a great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds. So where is Jezebel and her followers going? They're going into the tribulation period. The same imagery here of fornication and idolatry, synonymous with the harlot. Okay. So there's going to be a false church, if you will, but it's not going to be just made up of uh, Catholicism and apostate Christianity. It's going to be a, an amalgamation of all the world religions that are going to come together. And who knows what they'll call it, you know, but, it, but it'll be, uh, they may even call it Babylon, Mystery Babylon or something, I don't know. But there's coming a false church that's going to go through the tribulation period, and that is going to be um, the ones who are responsible for killing the Christians, ironically enough. So we get back to Revelation 17, 5, and we see that on her forehead was this uh, a mystery written, a name written, mystery, and the King James printed that mystery in all caps, probably shouldn't have, but they did get it right by putting a comma there, so if you got a comma. Uh, it reminds me of that TV show that used to come on Sunday nights after football. Remember Murder, she wrote? Murder, comma, she wrote, and Pat Summerall made a big, he always made a big thing of it. He would do a big dramatic pause. Murder, she wrote, and John Madden would start laughing. Well, anyway, you had to be there, I guess. <laughs> Showing my age. <clears throat> so anyway, Babylon the Great, she's the mother of harlots. She's the progenitress. You know, this is where it all started. So you can't, a lot of people point to the Catholic Church and say, well, the Catholic Church is the harlot. Well, she's a daughter harlot. She's not the mother. For the mother, you've got to go back to Genesis 10 and 11 where the world was of one speech, one language uh, in the plain of Shinar. All right. Now in verse 6, we see that the woman is drunk with the blood of the martyrs. Now remember before, she was making everybody else drunk. Remember? She's intoxicating the world, but now the woman is drunk, you know? The roles have been reversed. And what we find is that people who deceive others are deceived themselves. Um, and you've heard the old adage probably, hurting people hurt people. And, and so here she is, uh, she's intoxicated herself with the, uh, with the blood of the saints. What a horrible image there. She's drunk with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. So that tells us who's killing the Christians in the first half of the tribulation period. Uh, go with me to Revelation uh, 6. And we talked about this last week, so this is review. But in Revelation 6, the seals are being opened. And this is the first part of the tribulation. This is not the end. This is the first part. And when you get to the fifth seal, verses 9 through 11. Adam, would you read that? Revelation seven, excuse, Revelation six, nine through eleven. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the world of God and for the testimony which they held, and they cried with a loud voice, saying, "How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth?" Then a white robe was given to each of them, and it was said to them that that they should rest a little while longer until both of the number of their fellow servants and their brethren 
who would be killed as they were was completed. All right. So who's killing these people? Well, the answer is in chapter 17. That's what the angel's telling us. It's the harlot. She's the one that's drunk. She's intoxicated with the blood of the, uh, of the martyrs. And it says at the end of verse 6 that he said, I wondered with great uh, King James's admiration. Should be like astonishment maybe. Uh, the Greek word is thamadzo. It means it was, uh, he, was, he was astounded. You know, this, this disgusting image of a, of a woman who's drunk with the blood of, of, of the saints. Now the angel says in verse 7, Why did you thamadzo? <laughs> Why did you marvel? I will tell you the mystery. And notice the mystery is of the woman and who? The beast. So it's not just about the woman, but it's about their relationship. Okay? The relationship between the, the woman and the beast. And notice something else. I just noticed this uh, this week in my studies. It says, and of the beast that carries her. You see that? It's a symbiotic relationship. In the first part of the description, the woman is steering the beast, right? She's sitting on him. Kind of like the person who's on top of the horse is the one who's controlling the horse, presumably, in a good scenario, right? <laughs> the one who's riding is, if you've never been in that scenario, you know, you, you can't appreciate that, but... <laughs> But she's driving the horse, so to speak. But now it says that the beast is carrying her. Okay? So he's willing to put up with her as, as long as he is getting something out of it. But we'll see that, that uh, he's going to uh, change his attitude. The beast will. All right. Now we get to the turning point. This is where we stopped off last week. Says the beast that you saw was and is not, and shall ascend out of the bottomless pit. So he points to the fact that the Antichrist is going to be killed. He's going to suffer a fatal wound. He's going to come back to life, uh, just in a parody, if you will, or a counterfeit resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, some people say, "Well, the devil can't do that. You know, he can't. He's only a destroyer. He can't give life." And you're missing the point, really. The point is not whether or not he can do it, but he pulls off the counterfeit. It's effective. Okay? And that's all you need to know is that it's effective. All right. Now, in another part in verse 8, it says that all who dwell on the earth, and that's the last mention of the earth dwellers, and who are they? The lost people, right? They're unbelievers. All of the lost people shall do what? Wonder. You see that word wonder? It's the same word, thamadzo. There's a play on words here. John's wondering, thamadzo, and the angel says, don't thamadzo. He says, I'm going to show you another group that's wondering, thamadzo. And these are the earth dwellers. And they're wondering at the beast. But they've got a big problem. <laughs> the problem is their name has not been written in the book of life. From where? Foundation of the world. That doesn't mean that they were blotted out. The Greek text literally reads, it was never written in. Now, that may mess with your theology a little bit, but I'm okay with it messing up my theology. I'd just rather believe God's Word and take it at face value. I, there are things, how many of you know there's things that God knows that I don't know? <laughs> and things that you don't know, God's got it all under control. I will promise you this, there's not one person that wants to be saved that God won't save. Okay? So whatever your views on that are, okay, and notice at the end of verse 8, they're going to wonder at him, and the reason that they, it says that they behold him. 
They behold the beast. Why? Because he was alive, he was dead, and he came back to life. That is exactly what Jesus Christ uh, says. You know, he, was lit, he said, I'm he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I'm alive forevermore. It's amazing, isn't it? Jesus Christ really lived, he really died, and he really rose again, and people refused to believe in him. This guy does the same thing, apparently, and everybody worships him. Um, and I could develop that further, but let's just go on. Verse 9. And here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. Okay. First thing it says is it requires wisdoms. So why don't we take a break right here, and I'm just going to pray for God to give us wisdom. How about that? All right. Father, we thank you for this portion of your word. I'm asking you right now in faith that you would give me wisdom and give everybody here wisdom and everybody that's listening wisdom to be able to comprehend, grasp, and apply this truth. In Jesus' name, amen. The reason I did that is because in James chapter 1, verse 5, it says, if any of us lack wisdom, we can ask. Right? I apologize. That wasn't spontaneous. I, pr I planned to do this. But, it, I, you know, I did it for dramatic effect. Now, the last time that there was a special call for wisdom was when, when God was explaining the mark of the beast, Revelation 13. You want to read that, Adam, that first scripture on top? 13, 18, Revelation. Here is wisdom. Let him that hath understanding count the number of, of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is six hundred, three score, and six. All right, thank you. So that, that requires special wisdom. Now, I believe it's going to be most applicable to those who are alive during that time period. We don't need to be overly anxious about this. You know why? Because we're not going to be here if we're saved. We're going to have a front row seat uh, or in the mezzanine uh, to, to see this. Now, a lot of people when they get here to this scripture, a lot of commentaries, you'll see that um, it says that the seven heads are seven mountains. And people automatically jump to conclusions and say, well, there's a city that sits on seven hills. What city is that? Rome. And I say, aha, it's the city that sits on seven hills. It must be Rome. But let me ask you something. Why would that require any wisdom? Everybody knows that, right? So why would God say this requires wisdom? He wouldn't. Now, there's another problem. It doesn't say seven hills, does it? It says mountains. Everybody know the difference between a hill and a mountain? If you don't, how many, how many of you remember the nursery rhyme, uh, Jack and Jill? Okay. We'll, we'll take out hill and put mountain there. Okay. And it goes from being something cute and clever to being a tragedy, right? If Jack falls down the mountain. I mean, he's like, you know, Hank Williams Jr., he can do it, but not anybody, just everybody can do that. Right? All right. I need some new material. You're not laughing at my jokes. <laughs> Y'all are laughing at the fact that you're not laughing at my jokes. That's, that's the humor. That's the, God is a God of irony. Praise God. All right. Now, the seven heads are seven mountains where the woman sits. Now, again, you've got to keep the woman and the beast separate. The woman is riding the beast. Amen? Or the beast is carrying her. So Rome can't ride Rome. Okay? <laughs> I guess it could in some, in some strange way. But here's the thing. Mountain in the Scripture is an idiom for a kingdom, okay? 
And I've given you two examples from the Old Testament, one from Jeremiah and one from Daniel. There are others, but for sake of time, I only gave you two. So Adam, you want to read those for us? Thank you. Behold, I am against thee, O destroying mountain, Babylon, saith the Lord, which destroyeth all the earth. And I will stretch out mine hand upon thee, and roll thee down from the rocks, and will make thee a burnt mountain. Then was the iron, the clay, the brass, the silver, and the gold broken into pieces together, and became like the shaft of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away, that no place was found for them. And the stone that smote the image before it became a great mountain, and filled the whole earth. That stone, by the way, is the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's his kingdom. All right. We're still in uh, Revelation 17, I hope. Now, it says the seven kings. Now, the King James says, and there are seven kings. The New King James does it even worse. They say there are also seven kings. The NIV does the same thing. It's not accurate. The Greek literally says they are seven kings. In the Greek, it's kai basalu hepta isin. And kings, seven, they are. That's how it reads. Okay? You, you don't have to trust me. You can look it up for yourself. It's, they, they are seven kings. Okay? This is not talking about the seven hills of Rome. We're not dealing with geography. We're dealing with symbolism where kingdoms are uh, idioms. Mountains are idioms for kingdoms. They are seven kings. Now, here's the thing. Five are fallen and one is. Well, we know that can't be the hills of Rome, right? Because that means there used to be seven, but, but now five of them, those hills are gone. You see how it, it all falls apart. Follow for follow. One is, and the other is not yet come. And when he comes, he may con continue a short space. Uh, I'm going to say seven years, to be exact. All right, I'm going to do my best to explain the seven mountains in... Uh, uh, in a way that would be easy for us to understand. Five of those empires have fallen. Now, the, God's word does not discuss all of the kingdoms of the world. It doesn't. You know, you, you can't go to the Bible and, to read about the history of the Chinese people or about the, uh, the people in Jamaica, right? Now, does God have something to say to all those people? Well, yes, of course. But God tells his story in the book as it relates to his chosen people. Okay. So there have been five empires that were hostile toward God's people. Number one is, is who? The Egyptians, Pharaoh. Number two is the Assyrians. We don't know as much about them, but they carry captive the northern tribes. Number three is who? Babylon. Who was the leader of Babylon in that, in that Neo-Babylonian era? He carried the Jews captive, Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar, very good. Number four was Medo-Persia. Number five is what? Greece. All right, so five of those have fallen. They've come and gone. They were not destroyed, but they, they came and gone. Now, number six, one is, who was in power when John wrote the book of Revelation? Rome, ancient Rome. Now, there's another to come, and, and I believe that's a revived Roman Empire, Daniel 9 says that the prince that's going to come, uh, he's going to be from the people that destroyed the temple in 70 AD, which is the Romans. 
Now, he goes on to say in verse 11, Revelation 17, 11, the beast that was and is not, this is the turning point. I wish it was printed in capital letters like Mystery Babylon, but it's not. But this is the turning point here. Okay. The beast that was and is not. Who's that? That's the Antichrist. That's the last empire. Even he is the what? The eighth. There's seven heads. The woman rides the beast with seven heads. Are you with me? But she ain't going to be riding number eight. You follow? So there's coming an eighth. The beast that wasn't is not. Even he, notice it's a personal. It's not just an empire, it's a person. He, the beast, the Antichrist. He is the eighth. And he's of the seven. How can he be of the seven? Because he was alive in phase seven. He died. And then he came back to life. So he's, he's of the seven, but he's, the eight, he's going to be the eighth. But the good news is, He's going to perdition. God tells us. He's not going to live forever. You see, that, that's important for us to realize. Because see, the whole world thinks, man, this guy's undefeated. Nobody can kill him. Who can make war with the beast? And God says, he's going to die. That's what he's saying. Don't worship him. He's going to die. That's why the Holy Spirit is driving these points home. And I can feel it in my soul. I hope you're grasping this, what God's trying to tell us. Okay. <clears throat> Make sure I got my notes straight here. Okay, let's keep going. Verse 12. The ten horns which you saw are ten, what? Kings. They're not hills. Okay. They're ten kings. Have they had a kingdom before? They're unprecedented, aren't they? They received no kingdom. Is it? That's even in John's day. They've received no kingdom as yet, but they receive, kings, uh, re- receive power as kings for one hour. Now, when John talks about an hour, it, it denotes a short period of time with the beast. Now, notice in verse 13, and I'm telling you what, these things just came alive to me in recent weeks in my studies. It says, these have one mind. Man, I wish God's church could be that way. It was on the day of Pentecost. didn't last long. They were all in one accord in one mind in one place and God's Holy Spirit filled the place. I believe if God could ever get a church in one mind in one accord in one place, God's Holy Spirit would just flood the, the whole place. United in truth, not ecumenical nonsense, but united under the blood-stained banner of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. All personal agendas aside, I'm not here to get my way. You're not here to get your way. It's not Burger King. We're here to do God's thing and experience the power of God. And I believe if we just get out of the way, and I'm saying, I said we, I didn't say you. If we could just get out of the way and let God do his thing, it would be, we would be amazed and the people around us would be amazed and we wouldn't be able to have enough seats in this church because everybody would want to see what God's doing here. And that's my prayer for this place, okay? That's why I'm not preaching angry. I'm preaching myself happy. That's my prayer for this place is to see it full of people experiencing the power of God. This, this thing will change you. Brother Ronnie, he, he, talked to, he was singing about that earlier, you know? This gospel, this gospel, Paul says, will change you. He said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the power of God unto salvation unto everyone that believes. Hallelujah. God's no respecter of persons. 
You want the power of God? You can have it. You can have it. If you'll just uh, 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 make yourself an available vessel. God's just looking for a jar of clay. That's all he's looking for. He's not looking at your ability. He's looking at your availability. Here I am, Lord. Send me. Here I am, Lord. Fill me. All right. These guys have one mind, and here's what they're going to do. It's an incredible thing. It says that they give their power and strength unto the beast. Now, what world ruler do you know today that would be willing to do any of that stuff of his own accord? Can you see Vladimir Putin just turning over his empire saying, you know what, I think you could do a better job, Joe Biden? Y'all should have laughed at that one. That was hilarious. None of these guys, why? Because they don't want to give up their power. But here they do something that's unthinkable to the human mind. They have a kingdom. They're kings. But yet they cede their kingdom over to the beast. <clears throat> so they do the unthinkable. Now, um, in order to discuss the ten kings, I've got to take you back to Daniel. Don't worry, we've only got a few slides here to go. Remember that statue? We just can't seem to get away from this guy, can we? Nebuchadnezzar has a dream in, in, uh, in chapter 2 of Daniel. And, uh, and the angel is going to, ex- excuse me, Daniel is going to explain the dream to Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, Adam, if you could read Daniel 2. I've got 42 and 44. I left out 43 just for space and time. Could you read that for us? And as for the toes of the feet were part of iron and part of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly broken. And in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break into pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. All right, notice it says in the days of those kings. What kings? The ten kings. The ten toes. A lot of people forget about the ten toes on the statue. The ten toes represents the last empire. And when Jesus Christ comes, he's going to crush that empire. Now in chapter 7, Daniel has a dream. A night vision, he calls it. So, Adam, would you read Daniel 7, 24 through 26? And the ten horns out of this kingdom are ten kings that shall rise arise and another shall rise after them and he shall be diverse from the first and he shall subdue the three kings and he shall speak great words against the most high and shall wear out of the out of the saints of the most high and think to change times and laws and they shall be given into his hand until a time times and the dividing of time but the judgment shall sit and they shall take away this his dominion to consume and destroy it until the end all right, so he's going to be destroyed. Nebuchadnezzar saw ten toes. Daniel sees ten horns, but it's the same thing. It's the exact same thing, just different uh, description. All right. Let's go back to Revelation 17, verse 14. Crazy things are going to happen with these kings. It says they're going to make war with the lamb. It's interesting, you've got a war between a beast and a lamb. Doesn't seem like a fair fight on the surface, does it? How many of you know the lamb wins? 
Because <laughs> God's chosen the foolish things that confound the wise. And the one who sacrificed himself so that we could be saved is the one who has the ultimate victory. Wow. I love that imagery. These shall make war with the lamb, and the lamb shall overcome them. Most of the time when Jesus Christ is referred to in the book of Revelation, the title used most often is the Lamb, the Lamb of God. And they sh he shall overcome them, for he is the Lord of lords and the King of kings. Oh, my. In the Old Testament, this is what Yahweh says about himself, Jehovah God. So you can apply the same praise to Jehovah God, the Father, as you can to Jesus Christ. Uh, Adam, would you read what it says there, Deuteronomy ten seventeen? For the Lord your God is God of gods, and the Lord of lords, a great God, a mighty, and a terrible, excuse me, and a terrible, which regardeth not persons, nor taketh reward, which in his times he shall shew, who is the blessed and the only, concentrate, and the King of kings, and the Lord of lords. And he hath on his venture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Yes. Those, re those New Testament references were from 1 Timothy 6 and Revelation 19. Jesus Christ is the same king, just like God is king. Jesus Christ is not just a king, my friend. He is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. But there's another part of verse 14, if you go back to Revelation 17. And it says there's some people who are with this king. You see that? They're with him. You see, at the rapture, Jesus comes for his church. At the second coming, Jesus comes with his church. And don't twist those up. Don't try to bifurcate those. You, they're distinct. They're separate. At the rapture, Jesus comes for the church. At the second coming, Jesus comes with the church. All right, and there is a direct contrast between the beast and his followers. Now, the beast has his throng of people that follow him, right? But their names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. They're lost. He's going to die, and they're going to die with him. But this group with Jesus, the lamb who died and rose again, these are three descriptions. They're called, they're chosen, and they're faithful. Now, for those of you who like a little free will mixed in with your predestination, you're going to be in for a treat. Because the first two things, the calling and the choosing, you see, notice it says they're chosen. That's God's doing. I got no part in that. I can't call myself. I can't choose myself. Now, if I could, I would, right? And you would too. But we don't have the power to do that, okay? Now, this is not angels. Angels are chosen, but they're not called. They don't have a sin nature. We do. So we have to be called by God. The angels are not called, but we are. But here's where the free will comes in, if you want to use that word. I, I prefer human responsibility. But um, It says that they're not only chosen, they're not only called, but they're what? They're faithful. That means they believe. The Greek word is pistos. It means that they believe in the Lord. So, so regardless of your views on predestination and free will and all that, not one person is chosen and called and written in the Lamb's book of life without believing in Christ, okay? You have to believe in Jesus Christ to have your name in the Lamb's book of life. You have to believe in him to be saved. 
There is no other way to be saved. All right, so we can argue about that, that other stuff till the cows come home, but hallelujah. We're almost done with the chapter. Praise God. Now, verse 15, I won't go too much into detail about that because we've already talked about it. The, he said to me, the waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. Again, the Bible doesn't leave us to our own sanctified imagination. God explains the symbolism. Just like the seven mountains or seven kingdoms, the waters are peoples, nations, and tongues. It, that's that fourfold uh, way of describing the whole world. So this is, this is uh, affecting the whole world. All right, verse 16. Verse 16 is interesting. Boy, it's interesting. And the ten horns which you saw upon the beast... They shall hate the whore. That's amazing. You know, I was thinking about this morning, Brother Anthony. I was thinking about that scene in Top Gun where Maverick and Goose are singing, You never close your eyes anymore when I kiss your lips. They weren't the first ones to sing that. That was the Righteous Brothers. A little trivia for you. You've lost that love and feeling. The Beast has lost that... Did y'all like my singing? I promise I won't do it too much. <laughs> I sound about like goose, don't I? Yeah. Uh, <coughs> anyway. <laughs> yeah. uh, I'll, I'll save it for the shower, okay? And for these brief moments that I can bless you in a special way. But these ten whores, they've lost that love and feeling. And it says, they will hate the whore. And they'll make her desolate and naked. Remember, she's clothed with scarlet and gold and all these things. What's their motivation? They want what she's got. Apparently, she's a rich entity. But the Antichrist and his, his cohorts, they want all that wealth. The Antichrist wants all that worship. But the, these ten kings, uh, they, they want the wealth. They'll make her desolate and naked, and she'll eat her flesh and burn her with fire. There is an, uh, there's an absolute allusion to an Old Testament person here. Does anybody know who the, the allusion is to a, it was a woman in the Old Testament. Say it louder. Somebody said it right. Jezebel. In 2 Kings chapter 9, verses 35 through 37. Would you read that, Adam? And they went to bury her, but they found no more of her than the skull and the feet and the palms of her hands. Wherefore, they came again and told him, and he said, This is the word of the Lord, which he spake by the servant Elijah the Tishbite, saying, In the portion of Jezreel shall dogs eat the flesh of Jezebel, and the carcass of Jezebel shall be as dung upon the face of the field in the portion of Jezreel, so that they shall not say, This is Jezebel. So she's utterly destroyed. Same as the harlot here. All right. Back to Revelation 17. What in the world causes these ten kings and the, the beast? Actually, there's, if you've read the book of Daniel, you know the Antichrist kills three of those kings, but we won't get into all that uh, this morning. What in the world makes these guys who used to be such good friends <laughs> destroy them? Here's what I've learned. When the devil's through with you, when he's done using you, he'll throw you away. 
We see that with government, don't we? They're, they've always got some useful idiot. I call them a useful idiot. Somebody that they, they can use to promote their cause. And, and I, could, I could name names here, but I won't. Y'all are with me? When they want to promote some kind of an agenda, they'll find a useful idiot. And when they're done with them, you know what they do? They'll turn on them. Yeah, they'll turn on them. Just like Judas Iscariot. He was useful to Satan as long as he needed somebody to betray the master. But once Judas betrayed the master, he was expendable, right? The devil said, go ahead and kill yourself. I don't need you anymore. Judas throws the money, right? He throws the money on the table. And, and, and they're like, we don't want that. We couldn't care less about you. You were nothing but a useful idiot to us. And that's what Satan does. He uses and then he throws you away. So think about that the next time he invites you to get in bed with him. Is that the minute he's done using you, he will throw you away. And he won't think twice about it. But God Almighty loves you. He cares for you. And he said, lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. That means it doesn't matter what I've done. It doesn't matter how many times I fail him. He said he would never leave me nor forsake me. I can count on that. That's a promise. That's a promise. It's not a threat. It's a promise. I'll never leave you and I'll never forsake you. doesn't matter what I do. That's not contingent upon my good behavior. That's a promise that he made to me. But here's what's astonishing. In 17, we find out the answer. What on earth causes the devil to turn on himself? God has put it in their hearts to fulfill his will. The heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. The heart of your boss is in the hand of the Lord. The heart of your neighbor is in the hand of the Lord. The heart of your children is in the hand of the Lord. God's in control of everything, my friend. Even the devil is God's devil. And that's what we're learning. He's on a leash, guys. Now, it's not as short as I'd like for it to be. <laughs> but sooner, sooner than later, he's going to be on a real short leash. He's going to be in the bottomless pit for a thousand years. And that's why he's in such a hurry to mess up your life. Okay. God hath put it in their hearts to fulfill whose will? God's will. This is the sovereignty of God, my friend. And to agree and to give their kingdom unto the beast. That's why they do the unthinkable. It's because God is King of kings and Lord of lords. And he will use them even though they don't know they're being used. <laughs> There's a you can't help but think that God's got a sense of humor. You can't help. He uses the devil to destroy this false religious system. You know another reason why the devil does this? He understands a principle that we don't. Jesus said every kingdom divided against itself will, stand, will not stand. You know? That's why America is in the problem that it's in. We're so divided. No. Satan knows this. He understands this. He knows the power of unity. Remember, he's the one that started the Tower of Babel. One, one place, one accord, one mind. And he understands that. So he wants to get rid of all opposition. No more false worship. I want all the worship. Until the words of God shall be fulfilled. <laughs> See, Jesus Christ is coming back to the planet earth and God's got a he's got a plan and that plan is going to happen exactly how he has delineated here in his word and then in verse 18 God explains to us who the harlot is one more time the woman which you saw is that 
great city, which reigneth over the kings of the earth. You say, well, how can a city be a harlot? Think of it this way. Think about Hollywood. Well, don't think about it too long. Hollywood is the literal place, right? I've seen the sign. It's a literal place, but it's also synonymous with a system, isn't it? When I say to you Hollywood, most of you don't think about the city, do you? You think about movie stars, TV stars, whatever. Babylon is not, it, it is a literal city. Make no mistake about it. If you've been here the last three Wednesday nights, you should have that hammered on. It is a literal city, but it's also representative of a system, which is that world system united in blasphemy against God. And guess what God's going to do to that system? He's going to utterly destroy every bit of it. You say, well, what about the beasts and the kings? They got away with it. Nope, keep reading. We'll talk about that in subsequent uh, messages. But they're not getting by either. God uses them to punish the harlot, but they're going to get theirs too. Matter of fact, the beast and the false prophet will be the first two to enter to the lake of fire they will bypass the great white throne judgment. They will not pass go. They will not collect $200. They're going right to the lake of fire. Okay? Would you stand this morning? You say, what does all this have to do with me? This is a highly symbolic chapter. And it is. But I believe the, the lessons are timeless. You can follow the beast and the dragon and the world system of Babylon. You can follow that. But as we're going to see next week, Lord willing... Even the city is going to be utterly destroyed. There will be no, nothing left of Babylon. The religious system has been destroyed here today. Next Sunday, the whole city collapses in a moment of time. If you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, if you leave this world without Jesus Christ, you will have lost everything. Absolutely everything. Jesus said, what will a man profit? What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world? And loses his soul. If you go into eternity without Christ, you have nothing but emptiness. Nothing but emptiness and torment. So you can be a citizen of Babylon and not have you can have your name on the registry of Babylon, and when it destroys, when it's destroyed, you'll go with it. Or you can have your name written in the Lamb's Book of Life, and come what may, you can live or you can die. But for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. So if I die as a Christian, I haven't lost anything. I've gained everything. I've gained it all. You see, this harlot, she's arrayed with scarlet and gold. Well, guess what? In the New Jerusalem, they paved the streets with that stuff. That's what God thinks about that. He paves the streets with gold. You can walk those streets of gold one day. You can have your name written out in the Lamb's Book of Life. You can have joy unspeakable and full of glory. You can be forever changed in this moment today. This may be your last opportunity. None of us knows. If you will put your faith and your trust in the one who lived a perfect life, born of a virgin, died on the cross for your sins, was buried, rose again the third day, is now at the right hand of the Father and is calling out to you, saying, whosoever will, let him come. If that's you today, come just as you are.